you are listening to AI Ready Healthcare. I am Anirban Mukhopadhyay, your host from Tiu Darmstadt, Germany. The purpose of AI Ready Healthcare is to connect the advanced technological knowledge of Mekai society to different stakeholders such as clinicians, industry personnel, regulatory personnel to name a few. You can expect deep meaningful conversations about bringing AI into the real clinical routine. Opinion belongs to whoever said it. Anything said here is not medical advice. Together let's make healthcare AI ready. I came so far for beauty. I left so much behind. My patience and my family, my masterpiece unsigned. I thought I would be rewarded for such a very lonely choice and surely should answer to such a hopeless voice. I practice on my sainthood, I gave to one and all, but the rumors of my virtue they moved her not at all. I changed my style to silver, I changed my clothes to black, and where I did surrender, now I would attack. I stormed the old casino for the money and the flesh, and I myself decided what was rotten and what was fresh, and mean to do my bidding and broken bones to teach the value of my pardon the shadow of my rage. But no, I could not touch her with such a heavy hand, her star beyond my order, her nakedness unmanned. I came so far for beauty, I left so much behind, my patience and my family, my masterpiece unsigned. You are listening to Came So Far for Beauty by Leonard Cohen. In today's episode of AI Ready Healthcare, I talked with Silesh Kanjeti about the MLOps of healthcare AI and how that can be used in practice while developing software solutions for real clinical world. So welcome to the fifth season of AI Ready Healthcare. Most of you already know me by now. I'm your host, Anirban, and it is a real pleasure for me to welcome our guest for today, Silesh Kanjeti. Silesh is the lead data scientist of Siemens Healthineers. He's focusing on the translational aspects of AI-based solutions to real clinics. So as such, the title of the podcast, AI-Ready Healthcare, fits very well to what Silesh is doing. Today, we will discuss about data science best practices for healthcare AI in industry with a special focus on how Silesh is doing things in Siemens. In particular, we will concentrate on two of the blog posts that Silesh has recently written, one about the MLOps adapted for AI in healthcare, and the second one is about evidence generation pathways in the clinical settings. We will provide both links in the description. But before all of these, welcome to the podcast, Silesh. 
Thank you. Thank you, Anirban. Thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure to be part of this exciting uh, AI Ready Healthcare podcast, right? I've been an avid follower of it, right? And now to be a speaker or, and also to represent the academia to industry view on it, right? Uh, happy to have this conversation with you. Looking forward to it. Thank you. Perfect. So I guess our traditional question is also towards you. By now, it's quite familiar. Is how is your journey? How did you become the scientist that you currently are? That's a very interesting question. And that's a question that, you know, I would like to speak from an anecdotal angle, right? So as with many of you listening to this podcast, I started my journey in a very traditional sense of doing a PhD in computer science with a focus on AI and medical imaging. I was a hardcore researcher trying to push the boundaries of the best methods applied for AI and medical imaging. Did that for a few years, right? Successfully finished my PhD with uh, Professor Nasir Nawab in TU Munich. Had a short stint as a postdoc. Uh, and then, you know, the biggest question that always was with me was, hey, we build all these cool algorithms, but I don't see this impacting patient lives, right? And the answer to that question had to be found in how care is delivered to patients today, which is through products, Right. In an attempt to move from academia to industry, right, I did uh, you know, explore a number of options that were out there. Many of them were traditional parts of research scientists, etc. But one that stood out very differently was that of becoming a product manager with Siemens Health Ears, right? Siemens Health Ears being a very big company, you know, delivering med tech to patients, right? It sounded like a good jump off point for me to get into industry at the same time also being at the front of bringing AI solutions to customers. So I started as a product manager with Siemens Health in years, uh, four years ago, right? And did product management for almost three years, right? Uh, brought a number of solutions to the market and enjoyed the journey thoroughly. And uh, around six months ago, it was sort of a homecoming for me to come back to data science as a functional lead for the data science team in our portfolio and to bring that uh, customer-centric thinking and product view back to science, right? And now also successfully trying to build a portfolio of AI applications for our customers. Yeah. So this is my journey in short. All right. So that's really exciting to see how you transition from academia to industry and how your first stint in industry was not as a scientist, but more of a manager. That's really quite a fine uh, transition, I would say. So Maybe one of the things that you mentioned there is that product is the thing finally that brings care to patients, right? And how different would this product-centric view be from the paper-centric view that we are so familiar with in the academia? That's an excellent question, Anirban. And that was the soul-searching question for me for the first six months of me becoming a product manager, right? Every decision that I took at the first six months, I was thinking like a data scientist or a research scientist, right? And I had to actively let go of one important philosophy, right? That it's easy to tell, but difficult to embrace, right? That is fall in love with the problem and not with the solution. Yeah. I think as a product manager, one thing that you develop is a deep sense of empathy, right? A deep sense of empathy towards your stakeholders who could be very much, uh, you know, internal stakeholders to the most important stakeholder who is your customer, right? And in my case, it was the radiologists. Uh, so we were building products for radiology AI applications. And what changed my perspective on things was actually going and shadowing radiologists, right? 
it would be an understatement if I say that I just shadowed them. There's also a deep observation of how they do their job, right? And when I did that exercise for almost 30 different, you know, radiology customers in the beginning, right? Some of them were virtual, some of them actually I went and sat down and saw their routine working. And with that, you have a deep sense of how to bring products, right? So algorithms certainly are one of the most important drivers, right? No doubt in that, yeah. So they ensure product quality. But the two other drivers that will actually deliver value is uh, integration of products into healthcare, right? Into the right workflow. And also clearly and building and written of invest business case for the customer, right? To drive this adoption. So when all these three come together, so that's the product-centric thinking versus paper-centric thinking that you noted, yeah? So... It's really the other two parts that I learned along the way of uh, transitioning myself from a research scientist, data scientist to a product manager. Yeah, that's really a great summary. So if I understand it correctly, uh, when you move from academia, which is more about loving your algorithmic solution, you start seeing the, let's say, the systemic view, the entire holistic picture of the problem itself that involves, of course, your customers, but it also involves the business case of the company that you are working with and how you can integrate it to the current workflow of your customer. It's not just an algorithm standalone that does awesome three-person development in terms of dice score or if score. Right. So that's, I guess, is the biggest thing that has changed. Exactly. All three have to come together, right? And, you know, to make it a sensible case for a customer, you need to hit the right right notes on all three levels. Best-in-class algorithms do not necessarily make best-in-class products, but best-in-class products always have best-in-class algorithms. Let's put it that way. Cool. So you have all these fortune cookie style wisdoms. That's <laughs> that's really the manager coming from uh, coming out from you, Silesh. That's wonderful. So I guess one of the things that we recently saw is you put a few blog posts in the LinkedIn, I think. And one of the common themes of these blog posts were the ideas of these definitions that are very common within the industry and really reusing it, redefining it in a way so that the healthcare AI can benefit from that. So now for our listeners as well as me, I'm not very familiar with this definition. So can you please loosely define these this terms such as DevOps, MLOps, etc.? Sure, Anirban. Again, thank you for referring to those blog posts, right? So let me open by a short and sweet disclaimer that these are my personal views, right? So these are what I have observed in the industry, talking to different stakeholders, talking to customers, you know, talking also to external uh, regulatory authorities and also position papers that a number of organizations have put out. These are not completely reflecting the official position of my organization. So let's take that out of our way, right? But coming back to the question that you have, right, on some of the software development practices that are quite advanced when it comes to delivery of good software, right, uh, in an agile fashion, right? So that's the sort of thinking where you want to bring software in a fast and continuous fashion to customers and it's been around for a few years where development and operations teams sort of work hand in hand under, under a certain common governance where they build stuff uh, and continuously integrate and deploy those to customers. This is easily done in a setting which is not highly regulated. Let's say we hear that 
some of the top-notch Silicon Valley companies deploy at best even even in few seconds, right? But when it comes to healthcare, where patient safety and ensuring the safety and efficacy of your devices are of primary importance, right? So that where there is no way to compromise that, right? The solutions need to be foolproof. While we want to continuously adopt these DevOps methodologies, we also need to be respectful of the boundaries and the regulations that we operate under. Say, uh, you know, medical device regulations in Europe. We also have uh, regulations in the US and also quality standards like ISO 13485, right? Uh, you know, information security standards, cybersecurity standards, et cetera, right? So how do you bring all of these governance and laws together? At the same time, be mindful of how to deliver products in a safe and effective fashion. That's really where the concept of adopting DevOps for healthcare came in. And being the ML scientist that I am, right? You know, I want to take it a notch further, right? Seeing how machine learning and DevOps go hand in hand. And this is MLOps, very much popularized by Andrew Eng, very much in the trend today. But uh, in that blog post, I try to explore how MLOps and AI in healthcare, so how do you do it in a regulatory compliant fashion, comes together. And in summary, I would say trying to bring software and products to the customers in the fastest time to market possible, but being respectful and mindful of the governance and the laws and regulations. At the same time, ensuring that the translation of innovation and research happens in a fast fashion. That's the goal of MLOps in healthcare. I see. So what you are saying is basically in the traditional or a typical software company setting, it's much more likely with that agile way of developing software means you are trying to maximize the number of interactions with your end user. And from there, you learn again and you do it again and again and you get better in a, in a sort of semi-organic way. Whereas that's not possible simply because in the regulatory aspects of healthcare, makes sure that you can only do so much. And then every time you have to make big changes, you have to go through the entire regulatory process again and again. And I guess the intended use case, et cetera, needs to be revised. So this is a very big problem of healthcare. And you suggested how, how we can adopt MLOps for healthcare AI. Right. So let me know if I'm wrong, but if I understood it correctly, can you give us three main points where we need to be really focused on when we are talking about developing such MLOps for healthcare AI? I mean, you aptly summarized it, uh, but maybe I paraphrase one point about what your remark on DevOps cannot be adopted. Yes, DevOps can be adopted, but it also needs to be adapted, right, to the setting that you're deploying in. Yeah. So as you rightly pointed out, being mindful of the fact that changes that you bring to software, especially changes uh, that can impact the intended use, the intended population, et cetera, right, needs to be thoroughly vetted and needs to go through the rigorous process of testing and validation and you know, clinical evaluation before you can bring this to the, to the market. That being said, you ask an excellent question of how these two change. So let me start from the ML cycle, right? Something that all of us in the audience are familiar with. How do we build very good ML products or algorithms? So the first and foremost way of seeing it is understanding what is the intended use? What are the indications? What are the contraindications? And having a clear understanding of the clinical utility of the products. 
what we are building are at the end of the day medical devices that we intend to be used for diagnostic purposes, deriving and delivering patient benefits. So it's important to understand the way these products would be set up and the way these products would be used. A classic example could be one where products that are, let's say, developed in Europe, in high-income countries where you have the best equipment and the quality of images in general are much higher, and deploying that directly to low- and middle-income countries, these may not translate right away. And you need to bring in certain adaptations to ensure the generalizability of that. So as an algorithm scientist, through your innovation cycles, it would certainly make sense to work together with the stakeholders to understand what are the nuances of your intended population and how do you design and develop a system that would fit well into that population. So this goes into the development part. The second part in the post the algorithm development, right, where there is also a lot of emphasis when it comes to evidence generation, rigorous testing nowadays. And there's also this excellent paper that was released quite recently on medical algorithmic audit, right? So it's quite an eye-opening paper on how rigorously they implore uh, users to test the AI solutions. And as a manufacturer or as people who want to bring the solution, this is also one area where we should invest a lot on ensuring that these solutions are tested thoroughly, are uh, generalizable to the populations that we want to deploy them on, that we have sound and safe arguments on how to use the product. And if you look at it, uh, recently FDA released an advisory on how not to use some of the products that we have for large vessel occlusion, right? These are products that are cleared for triaging cases for workless prioritization, but not intended as rule out. So they are not intended for diagnosis and they're not intended to rule out LVO cases. And it's important that the users understand this. And third and very important thing, uh, you know, for successful MLOps is also monitoring your products once they are deployed, being proactive about it in terms of post-market surveillance, in terms of automatic monitoring of these models. Every model that you put out there can be subject to data drifts, concept drifts. So how do you proactively monitor that, ensure that your models continue to perform the same way as you intended them, and also uh, understand failure modes, if any, right? And trigger appropriate retraining or recalibration of models as you see more and more heterogeneity in the field. So I think these are three elements in the ML, the dev, and the ops cycle that are sort of unique to AI in healthcare and where people need to invest quite a bit in setting up the right processes and the right people to do this. That's a very apt summary. So I guess the first point you mentioned is about the intended use, intended population. The second is about the algorithmic audit. And finally, post-market surveillance. It's very exciting to hear all this because this is almost a completely different world than the paper-centric viewpoint that we in academia are more used to, right? So that's quite interesting to hear. So I guess if we take one of the examples that you mentioned early on when you were talking about your journey is basically the AI dad companion. That's the product that you walked on as the product manager and brought into market. In fourth season of AI Ready Healthcare, one of our uh, guests was Kostin Rader. He talked about the clinical side of the AI dead companion story and why it's clinically relevant. So can you tell us the equivalent part of the development and business side story of how it went 
in your side of of the development thank you anirban for for this question right and uh, you know with full credit to the great team behind it right i i was one of the product managers taking care of one of the portfolio offerings so it's a larger team right and it's a it's a big team effort behind the success of airat companion right so the credit goes to the full team right uh, and certainly i i'm happy to uh, you know talk about our relationship with kasten and specifically uh, he's a super user of my product right the one that uh, i was a product manager for airat companion chest x right and kasten is one of our early adopters right so somebody who did not want to wait till ai becomes mainstream but he rather wanted to be part of that journey of ai becoming mainstream so he hopped on this train very early on right sort of gave us the right directions and insights on how to develop and uh, you know bring this product to market so we are very grateful to kasten and the fact that he spoke about airat companion makes me feel very proud the second question the you know let's take the business side of it first because that's often undervalued and uh, less understood right i mean it's fair to say that we are behind the hype that ai was right if you saw rsna 5 years ago right with a number of companies coming in with ai value proposition the market has become more and more mature right it's now it's no longer the question of developing the best in class algorithms i think science on the deep learning side on the algorithm design side has also evolved quite a bit that with the right data with the right annotations you can baseline performances equivalent to uh, expert users in an industrial fashion right very quickly yeah so i mean not setting aside the nuances of the problems that we have right but this is not the main differentiating factor today the main differentiating factor that i mentioned at the very beginning uh, which is defining success for the business case is how are these results presented to the user how is how are these products delivered to the customer in a way that you know in an already burdened uh, radiology reading workflow where efficiency is the most important thing right how do i get the most out of my workforce without uh, burning them out it's about delivering the results in a right and distilled fashion to the customers so we call this workflow integration that is uh, a very important part on the business side on beyond algorithms building products that work well and get well integrated on the business case side the most important question that we try to answer is the value proposition for customer also needs to add up as a return of invest business case for the customer and the burden of evidence lies with the manufacturer as well as with a lot of bodies promoting such an ai uh, solution uh, internally it's very evident that ai benefits patients brings value to the healthcare system but who will be willing to pay for it that's the big question that is being discussed in the industry circles right now you see a number of startups coming up it's it has slowed down a bit right there is a phase of consolidation that is going on in the market with many startups getting vertically integrated into tele radiology companies getting absorbed by medtech company like ours right or uh, you know just simply running out of business right so the business case should be strongly focused on efficiency this would be the business case if you're talking about healthcare system like the us or europe at the same time we also have to be mindful of the case where uh, we have underserved under underrepresented populations and in that case making the ai very high quality and also augmenting caregivers in those populations who may not be board certified radiologists could also be a good way to bring value to those populations right mainly in the low and middle income countries so the it's a two pronged approach how we approach high income countries 
where the main value proposition is efficiency and how we approach low and middle income countries where the main value proposition is access to care. This is the business side of it, right? The way I see it. And what was the third angle, Anirban, that you wanted to delve into? Well, the third angle was basically the development. And maybe yeah. if you want to give a little bit of an insight of how your MLOps ideas came into the actual development of the product. Yeah. So the way the FDA is right now seeing things, right, when it comes to algorithms is many of the algorithms that are out there are static algorithms. So algorithms that are sort of frozen and delivered to customers in a frozen package. Right. So they don't learn and continuously learn along the way. But they were they were they had a great forethought and uh, you know uh, in putting out guidances and ideas uh, and draft plans on something called change control protocol and with their whole AI as a medical device plan right that they that they came out with. So the regulatory authorities are now encouraging manufacturers to adopt advanced technology like federated learning, continuous uh, learning to continuously develop and bring products to the market. And this is a direction that the whole industry is also sort of shifting towards on how do we bring more versions of the algorithms to the field. And that's really where MLOps sort of becomes very important, not to do algorithm development, deployment, and you know productization in silos, but to see the interfaces and the interdependencies between all the three cycles, the ML cycle, the development cycle, and the operation cycle, and ensure that this common governance that everybody understands on what it takes to build a product, bring a product, also deliver a product. A concrete example that I can give could be from the ARAD companion chest X-ray, right? Where we went in first with a value proposition of building a product for upright films, for screening use cases, for, you know, in outpatient settings. That was the first value proposition, mainly centered around lung cancer that we brought to the market. And then COVID happened. And then the whole world tried to capitalize the existing solutions and to bring some value to customers in terms of breeding solutions for COVID. Because of the way we were set up, right, in terms of trying to bring all these three cycles together, one could quickly pivot into adapting the solution for COVID-19 features and also quickly bring that to customers in terms of prototypes, right, get that clinically validated and build up the body of evidence that is required and then use that body of evidence to bring that to the regulatory cycles, right? And this is also where uh, the operations part becomes very important on once it's deployed, right? Also continuously engaging with customers on how it is performing, where the value is, where, where the failures are, right? And feeding that back into the ML development cycle to improve the next versions and iteratively improve the next versions. Yeah, that's a great summary to a rather, I guess, complicated issue from where the our typical listener is a little bit far away off. So I guess if I want to bring back some of the attention, so two of the things that you said, the first thing would be about the fact that how we need to think about healthcare AI products for high-income countries is very different from the middle and low income countries. I mean, for high income countries, it is often quite clear that we have to talk more about the efficiency, maybe more about the standardization, quantification of the results, etc. But since both me and you, we come from India, we have a general understanding of the healthcare situation in a very practical, eye-opening way. 
So most of like, I guess both of us are quite aware of the access to care problem in a very true fundamental on the ground level. I mean, I often talk to clinicians here who always mention that probably the biggest value of AI lies not just in the high income country, but really bringing access to care in the low and middle income. So I'm really glad to hear that that's also how the business case you are thinking about when you are bringing such a product in the market. The second point I wanted to bring forward from all the points that you mentioned is about the uh, initial aspects of regulatory approval and there the fact that we have to think about how to access data and how to really make sure the intelligent systems that we are developing, they are being adapted in a dynamic clinical environment. So the first how to access data is often answered by now quite famous federated learning approaches. And I think many of the groups within Mikai and beyond are focusing on it. On the other hand, the continually learning from this dynamic world is something that is not yet that common. We have been working on this particular problem for, I guess, almost two years now. We have a few papers coming out. We are also making some codes, et cetera, code bases available for this. Because like whenever you move beyond the static environment, the entire way of how you even evaluate the performance, it becomes very tricky. And there is often a sort of backdoor engineering in the academic environment so that you come up with a setting where your algorithm looks the best, but it's not necessarily what the setting would be in a realistic clinical environment. So I think that's really a big problem. You briefly mentioned about it that FDA has come up with this open call to see how continually learning algorithms can be developed. But I'm also glad to hear that industry is also interested in such algorithms. But this brings me to the next question, which is often neglected in the academia, is again the question about regulatory approval. So I guess for your uh, Chestex portfolio within the AI Red Companion, you had to go through this entire process of regulatory approvals, right? So how was your journey within this industry and Siemens ecosystem of getting the approval? Can you give us a sort of insights of what were the eye-opening experiences there? Absolutely, Anirban. And, and uh, you really touched a very, very important point, right? Which was also a big learning curve for me when I moved from academia to industry is, hey, we have all these cool algorithms. We want to make a product out of it. But how do we safely bring that to the customer? And this is really the role that uh, the regulatory authorities play, right? So they are gatekeepers who ensure that products that enter the healthcare system are safe for patients, have the benefit that they, that they are promised. And they always see from a risk to benefit thinking when it comes to classification of products. And from that, they also track, track back that, okay, if a product falls into a certain category or class, this is the level of evidence that you need to generate to show that the product is actually going to deliver the value to the customers in a safe and effective fashion. It's more of a science, right? So regulatory science, right? Rather than just a set of rules or rule books that, that you need to follow, right? Regulations certainly are in the current context, right? When we moved from uh, medical device regulations in Europe to MDR, the emphasis on clinical life cycle management, 
emphasis on clinical evaluation, continuous post-market surveillance, periodic safety, uh, safety updates, and uh, ensuring that you fulfill all the safety and performance requirements before delivering a product to the market has become standardized, a lot more uh, emphasized on, and the industry is also evolving in its understanding on uh, on what, what we need to do to bring the products to the market. You took this particular example of ARAT companion chest x-ray, right, for which I was a product manager of, right, and from the nature of the product, it is a computer-aided diagnosis detection product, right? So it's considered one of the higher classes of products that, you know, you bring. In comparison, uh, you know, would be what we typically call tax products, which are uh, products where you do segmentation, quantification, but do not do any diagnosis or direct the attention of users to certain areas or volumes of interest in the image, right? So the pathways towards clearance of uh, at least th- these two broad categories of products are quite different, but the commonalities are also there. The first and foremost would be standalone testing, where the focus really is on testing your products on unseen population. So this is where adhering strictly to good machine learning practices, right? Where you are really talking about uh, curating test data sets in an independent, unseen fashion, right? Not overlapping with the training data sets, which is also representative of the population that you want to deploy on becomes important. Once you have done that, you also have to establish a good reference standard, right? Which is more of a representation of the standard of care, right? Many a times we use uh, multi-reader consensus for that. Sometimes we also use higher standards like biopsy or contrasted uh, scans, et cetera, to derive that, right? So it changes from body part to body part to uh, modality to the indication that you're trying to clear. Once you've done that, uh, in the standalone testing, all the metrics that we typically report in Mikai papers from die scores, ROC curves, sensitivity, specificity, all becomes important. But one thing when it comes to CADI, CADEX products that becomes even more important is not the AUC or the ROC. It's really the, the operating point, right? The clinically relevant sensitivity and its specificity profiles that these products operate under. One main problem with CAD that every designer uh, of such a product has to contend with is issue of false positives. You know, when you build a CAD product, you can only deliver value apparently if you show something. So the products tend to be more sensitive than readers usually are so that they can draw the attention of the readers to things that they would miss at the cost of uh, false positives, right? Uh, It's always a trade-off. So how do you build trust in a product, right? At the same time, controlling the false positive rate is an important design choice. The second part to all of this is uh, ensuring that your product is thoroughly vetted for biases, for any sort of disparities that it might have inherited from the training. We do curate data set from the healthcare systems and healthcare disparities uh, do get reflected in the training and an explicit attention needs to be placed in terms of fairness and analysis of subgroups, let's say ethnicity-based analysis, age-based analysis, gender-based analysis, right? Even uh, when you have multiple vendors, right? Vendor-based analysis. So all these confounding factors that could come. Say, for example, uh, in the chest X-ray product and the detection of pneumothorax, right? Which is a very critical indication. We have papers in, in even in the Mikai community where we have excellent uh, you know, uh, performances. But if you dig a little bit deeper, is it really a learning the actual indication, which is pneumothorax, or is it learning an strong correlate, which is the presence of a chest tube dra- uh, you know, a drain that is actually placed when there is a pneumothorax? 
The same for skin cancer markers, right? So is it actually learning attributes of skin cancer or is it actually learning the markings that are put on top of the skin cancer? So AI can reach a very high AUC, but it also needs to be explainable. You need to go back and check if it's actually learning the right clinical markers and the and the correlates that uh, you know a radiologist would trust on. That's very much done in the standalone testing. And once you have a clear understanding of hey, this algorithm meets all the acceptance criteria, you know that we set or pre-specify, it's a good to go from a uh, rigorous testing perspective. One more addition is the clinical performance assessment that CAT products need to also go through, where we want to demonstrate that radiologists or intended users with the product actually do better uh, than without the product, right? So you're basically comparing aided versus unaided reading. And uh, this needs to be done in a proper clinical trial design and fashion where you write down study protocols, get that reviewed and approved. And uh, once that's uh, done, you run a study, usually a multi-reader, multi-case study, often in a fully crossed fashion, and finally do statistical analysis to show that the aided reading is superior to unaided reading. And with all this evidence that you generate, right, which usually comes after the algorithm is frozen, once you have reached a certain level of technical performance, right, you generate all this evidence. And together with all of this, plus the other aspects of product development, including user documentation, risk analysis, proper software engineering, right, that's when an algorithm becomes a product and a product that is ready for clearance. Great summary again. So I guess when it comes to an algorithm which is turned into a product and it needs to be approved by the regulatory boards, we have to think about the risk-benefit ratio and there we really have to generate the clinical evidence. And Silesh talked a lot of details about the actual process of the generation. And we can highly recommend his blog post about the clinical evidence generation as well, along with what he just said right now, because that, I guess, covers a lot of it that he just mentioned. So yeah, highly recommended. The link will be there. Check it out. One question, though, uh, to Sailesh is based on what you are saying about the explainability. Now, I guess this is a very overloaded theme and there are many different viewpoints emerging about explainability. The two main way of thinking would be one is about the fact that uh, when it comes to explanation of these AI algorithms, we have to do the human computer interaction way where the user is the focus and based on the user, we have to design our explanation according to that. The other one is basically the more of going into the randomized control trial where the, the, the pharma industry is going by. And we don't care about the exact pathway of decisions as long as the decision is there, it's good enough. So I guess from your industry perspective, what level of explainability is good enough for translating a product towards market? I mean, the way I see it, and this is also out of personal experience, right? Seeing is believing, right? And medicine is full of black boxes, right? As you rightly pointed out, many times we take drugs, we have prescribed drugs, and we do not 
necessarily understand the inner workings of it, but we trust it. We trust the process in which the drugs were cleared. We trust the authorities that cleared that. We trust our physician. And the physician, in turn, trusts the drugs came through a very transparent uh, you know, and very controlled, highly quality controlled process before it reached the hands of the caregivers. And it's really that trust building exercise that is needed also for AI-based interventions, in my opinion. And more than just talking about explainability, I would also like to extend that to explainability and transparency. You need not explain everything, right? As long as it's transparent on how it works, right? And the important part is also this whole trust building exercise that the user has to undergo with the AI. AI is nowhere close to perfect, right? It cannot be a panacea for all sorts of ailments, all sorts of exercises. But certainly AI has its value. And when used in conjunction with the user, the user needs to understand where the AI is good at and where he should not become over-reliant on the AI, where he or she needs to use their own medical judgment about the patient, the patient before they, they make the final call. So this whole explainability concept can be delivered in different forms. The first form of explainability is transparent uh, you know, user documentation on how the AI was built, how it was validated, where it's strong art, where should you use it with caution? And that's the first level. The second level is also about delivering the results in the right form and format, right? That the users can actually see if the AI is failing. When it's working, great, yeah? But it's really, the risks come in cases of false positives, false negatives, for example, where uh, you don't want to become over-reliant on the system. And uh, delivering that bit of explainability. And the second thing is also looking at Areas of explainability. I mean, it's heat maps is not the solution. I mean, clearly, it's creating one more additional image that the user needs to understand and try to understand what it is. But explainability comes in different forms. And working with your users to see what level of AI outputs need to be presented to him or her, that it will help them build the trust with the product, is probably the best solution I can advocate here. All right. So I guess... If I understood correctly, you are saying both directions has its merits as well as its shortcomings, but probably from an industry perspective, we should really wait and watch how each solution or each direction matures and then bring the best uh, into the practice. Uh, but of course, the main focus should always be trust on a product and we have to build a very rigorous system so that both the doctors, the patients, the caregivers, the entire ecosystem can trust on the product. Otherwise, we are, of course, in a serious trouble. So we are almost at the end of our one-hour session. And I have a very personal question to ask you. So you had a wonderful, successful academic career. You won awards, etc. in the Mikhail Society. You got your PhD from a very reputed institution specifically for this kind of research. And then you moved to product management at Siemens. So how was that transition? What were the most surprising things, both good and bad, of that transition? <laughs> Thank you, Anirban, for asking this question, right? And this is also a question that I want to leave the audience with, that the careers ahead, right, that, you know, postdocs or PhD students who are right now, right, listening to this podcast have, is not just 
on data science or research scientists. If you're passionate about that, certainly pursue that. But there are also multiple options, like in my case, product management. You can go, you can, you can become clinical coaches, you can become, you know, application specialists, solution architects. The industry, there's a whole ecosystem where this training and this uh, rigorous scientific thinking can be applied and can be applied uh, at different stages in the product delivery supply chain, if I may call it, in a way that finally our customers and uh, patients can be benefited. To my specific case of product management, the biggest lesson that I learned was thinking from a customer-centric point of view, right? I would like to rehash what I told at the very beginning, right? Fall in love with the problem and not with the solution. When I did do my PhD, right? You know, like with every other PhD student, I had a cool idea, very good mathematically sound uh, formulation. And uh, once I had that nailed down, I was going and hunting problems for it to actually make a case for it. This is the reality of uh, doing a PhD that uh, you're many, many a time solution driven. And when I came to product management, it was a difficult change of mindset, right? It took time, took uh, effort, but at the same time, it also took working in that cross-functional setting where you realize that there are multiple ways to see the same problem. And all of those viewpoints are important. And you develop a deep appreciation of your stakeholders, of people who are equally passionate about bringing products to the customers, right? So that was the biggest uh, learning for me. And the one thing that I would also advise, right, and also applicable in my case is I never left the scientist in me, right? You try to be active, uh, you know, in whichever direction you take to your core, which is for me being a research scientist, right? In whatever form and format I can have, stay up to date and stay relevant. So that was also the second part that I had to continuously work on. The part that I did not like, or which was a bit of a, a shocker for me, was the process part of it. The medical device industry, in contrast to academia, operates very differently. The processes are there for a reason. You need to understand them. You need to understand why they are put in place and find the meaning behind those. And once you find those, right, you can work with the processes rather than working against them. So at the end of the day, being a regulated industry that we are, process-driven mindset is there for a reason, right? And, you know, when you transition from academia to industry, be prepared to be bombarded with documentation and a number of stage gates and quality gates and processes. But Trust me, they're all there for a good reason. So the sooner you learn that, the faster you'll be able to work with those. Great. So I guess for all the early career researchers within the Mikhai community, you give a great balanced insight of what they can expect in case they choose to switch from academia to industry. I guess Considering the overall picture, it's actually a good idea to at least spend some time on both sides of things because then you have a bigger, fuller picture of how healthcare technology works rather than just staying on one side of things. Yeah, so on that note, thank you so much for your time, Sailesh. It was really, really an insightful one hour discussion where we learned so much about the product-centric viewpoint, the regulatory process, how to really develop product that will actually pass through regulatory process and how the transition works. Thank you so much for such an insightful discussion. Thank you, Anirban, for having me and all the very best to everybody listening. 
All righty then. Bye bye. Have a nice day.